Good morning or good evening to some of you. Welcome back to what is the last session just for this term. Uh, it's very likely that this series will pick up again in the future. There is no end to Genesis, thank God. Um, so it's very good to see everyone here again. For those joining us here on Zoom, if I invite you to become a panelist, again, you are not obligated to do anything. That just lets you into the room allows you to share your video if you wish to. And during question and answer discussion periods, you'll be able to unmute yourself rather than uh, needing to flag me down and wait for me to do it for you. Uh, but of course, you're also welcome to type questions and comments, take notes in the chat here. And if you're joining us on Facebook Live, hello, you're welcome to put your questions and comments in the comment section directly below this video. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, Hi, we're glad that you're learning with us. Uh, so, of course, the text for this class is found in your friendly neighborhood Tanakh, uh, but I will do my best to keep us up to date on the screen for your convenience. Um, if you prefer to use your own book, you are more than welcome to do so. And without further ado, Rabbi Silver, please. Thank you, Noah. Okay, yes, this is the last of this uh, series. We will hopefully continue after Pesach. Um, so, okay, so we're in chapter 35, and 34 was the story of Dina. We remember at the end of chapter 34 that there was a uh, sharp uh, interchange between Yaakov and Shimon and Levi. Yaakov speaks directly to them. He says, you've uh, either betrayed me or dirtied me, sullied me. Um, and he says specifically that you have put my family in danger. The term for family is by it. My family, I and my family will be destroyed. So he doesn't actually hear at least directly say you did the wrong thing. Maybe that's implied. But what he says to them is you've endangered. You've endangered us, the, the by it. And they respond either directly to him or about him. Sounds like it's more about him. What uh, should he, he being presumably Shechem on one hand, and perhaps Yaakov in addition, treat her as a prostitute. And they sort of get the last word in that interchange, or they mentioned last at least. So, you know, that has, uh, I think, supported, seen as a support for those who claim that the Chumash takes the side of Shimon and Levi. I'm not going to go there again. I don't believe the Chumash takes anybody's side at all. I think no one is. It's not black and white at all. And it's an example, I think, of the question is, what is the alternative? What might the alternative have been, which is a question raised by some of the commentaries. I think the point, though, is that very often in the, in, in the biblical texts and often in life, we're given two choices, neither of which is necessarily a good choice. And then we're forced to choose between not good choices. And we try to do the best we can in choosing. And very often it's hard to know which is the better choice of the two. And something along those lines is transpiring in chapter 34. To simply leave Dina there, whatever Dina's thinking, we'll never know. That doesn't seem a very, like a very good option. On the other hand, to massacre an entire town seems highly problematic. What might have happened? Was there another option over here? That's what the Ramban says. Yaakov thought perhaps they might even kill Shechem and Hamor and rescue Dina. Uh, 
We don't know if she wants to be rescued, but let's presume she does. In any event, the Chumash leaves it open. And the Chumash, I think, parcels out the blame, if you want to put it that way. Everybody, no one comes out of chapter 34 looking that good. Anyway, we ended chapter 34 with Yaakov saying that, you know, you've put my family in jeopardy and the surrounding nations will come to avenge the attack and destroy me and my family. And their response seems to be, we don't care or we just try to do the right thing or whatever. And that's how chapter 34 ended. Now chapter 35 that we started last time, suddenly God speaks to Yaakov in verse number one, go to Beitel, stay there. He spoke about that. Stay there means prepare yourself there. Don't just go there and do something right away, but go there and wait for a while. And then build a Mizbeach, build an altar to the God who appeared to you when you were running away from your brother Esau. And that recalls for us chapter 28, of course, where Yaakov goes to sleep. He's running away from his brother. He has a dream. He sees the angels ascending and descending on the staircase to heaven. And he makes a net, he makes a vow. Says, if you protect me, if you care for me, if you give me food to eat and clothing to wear, and return me in peace to my father's house, then you will be my God. That is to say, as we explained it, you will be my God in a personal sense. I'll do something that others cannot do. You'll be my personal God. That is to say, I'll build a family, every uh, the members of which are included in my dreams, in my in my covenantal connection. That's what Yaakov said. So he, he makes it conditional. If you bring me back and have to be, be brought back in, in security, protected, have to survive. But if you do that, Yaakov has taken a vow. Then Yaakov runs away. Um, Yaakov runs away. And um, what's interesting is he runs away for two reasons. He runs away because he's fleeing his brother Asa. He runs away because he has to find a, a wife, an appropriate wife, which allows the covenant to continue through him. And then what's very interesting is Yaakov's return from the house of Lavan that we studied in the past. And what's very not clear actually is if Yaakov left to his own devices would ever leave Lavan because he leaves Lavan for two reasons. First of all, because after he's manipulated Lavan's flocks, he um, sees Lovin's face and it's not with him the same way. And he hears people talking about him, Lovin's sons talking about him, and that worries him. And then we have in chapter 31, a direct command from God, go back home. Shuvah returns says God in chapter 31. That's the beginning of chapter 31. After he sees Lovin's face, he hears God's voice. And uh, the verse is chapter 31 or the first he hears the voice, then God speaks to him. Um, let's find what that is. He says, um, verse number three, chapter 31, verse, So God actually commands him to go. So it's a combination of two things. I mean, he sees, he understands he's in a dangerous situation. But then we have the divine imperative to leave, which leaves open the question, absent the divine imperative, would Yaakov have ever left? Because Yaakov now he's, feels endangered there, but the truth of the matter is that up to this point, from a certain perspective, he's done very well in the house of love and he's built his family, he's become wealthy. 
through this manipulation. And it's very unclear in the, in the Chumash whether at that point, at least, Yaakov's ready to leave. God, God sort of forces his hand. God instructs him to leave, and God promises protection, which God does. Love and chases after him. And if not for God's protection, Yaakov wouldn't make it back. But then he gets back. And when he gets back home, finally, Lovin catches up. There's a, a discussion, disagreement, treaty. Then he comes back home and he says, Lovin got, I was a stranger in the house of Lovin. So Yaakov is moving away from Lovin. That's a process of moving away from Lovin. And the promise was that if you protect me and give me clothing and food and protect me and bring me back in peace to my father's house, then this rock that I set up as a pillar shall become the house of God. So that's the promise, to come back to Beit El and to build the house, both the place of God's presence on earth and also the key word being Beit El, Bayit. He has promised to build a Bayit. And we, now we see in chapter 35, when 34, he said, you put my Bayit in jeopardy. And then in chapter 35, God commands him to go, Kumale Beit El, and God says, and bring the sacrifice, construct the altar that you promised to do to the God who appeared to you when you were running away from your brother. So now we continue in the next verse, in verse number uh, uh, 2, we discussed this last week, but God, Yaakov speaks to his bayit, and he says, remove the idolatrous objects, remove the idols from your, from your presence, purify yourself, change your garments, and we're going to go up to Beitel, and I'm, I will make the, build the altar to the God who was with me in the time of my troubles, Tzavati, and uh, protected me, was with me, Imadi, was with me on the road that I walked, which is exactly what Imadi was Yaakov's nether. So Yaakov is saying that God has been with me, and now God instructs, once again, instructs Yaakov to do it. Sounds like Yaakov is hesitant. And God says to Yaakov, go up there, which is a way of saying, I believe, and this is, I think, where we left off last time. It's a way of saying that I have, I have fulfilled my part of the bargain. And part of the bargain was, Bishafti, Bishalom, I will return in peace to my father's house. Now, Yaakov is concerned at the end of chapter 34 that he has not returned in peace to his father's house because he thinks that the neighboring peoples will actually destroy him. That's his concern. And what God is saying in effect is the same God that's protected you till now continues to protect you. So Yaakov, so you can, you can fulfill your vow. And since you can fulfill your vow, you must fulfill your vow because I've met, I've done my part of the bargain. I continue to protect you, it's safe to go. That's what God in effect is saying. So then Yaakov uh, has instructed them to remove the idols and they remove the idols and the, also the things perhaps used in idolatry, the jewelry, etc. We, we saw that elsewhere. And the verse is, last verse we did, and it says, by Tom Yaakov, in verse number four, Jacob buried these idolatrous objects, the idols and idolatrous objects, under the tree in Shechem. So the, the question is where these idols came from where the idolatrous objects came from, the rings, etc. And I, the strong suggestion in the text, I think, is that some of them, if not all of them, 
came from Shechem, because we know they took spoils from Shechem, and they took people from Shechem, and uh, those people, it would appear, are still with Jacob, right? Because it says earlier in verse number two, that Jacob spoke to his Beito, we all call Asherimo, and those that were with him, presumably those that are with him are the ones the family picks up in, in Shechem. But the question is, these idols, right? He spoke to his house and those that were with him. So the fact of the matter is that they, um, sounds like both of them have idols. That were with them have idols, understand. They're Shechemites, but that his own house has, has idols and idolatrous objects. Presumably, they took them from Shechem. Maybe they took them also from, from Laban, as Rachel did. But the story adjoins the story of Shechem. So Jacob here is going to bury. Uh, yes, later on, it does say in the Chumash, in the book of Devarim, should burn them. But over here, they bury them. And they bury them in Shechem, as if to say, that which came from Shechem stays in Shechem. That's what Jacob is saying. And now we continue our story. And the next verse is an interesting one. By Yisal, they journeyed. It says, Chitat Elohim. Chitat, Chita, Michita in biblical Hebrew means fear. In fact, it appeared earlier in Genesis after Noah emerges from the ark. And God said to Noah, who had brought, brings the sacrifice, God says to Noah, Your fear, dread and fear shall be upon the ark. The animals of the world. You now are different. It's a different situation than it was before the flood. Before the flood, it seems like the animals and the humans dwell sort of in, if not camaraderie, certainly a mutual. There's no sense that, I mean, animals are vegetarian, so they're not eating the animals either. Um, but afterwards, after the flood, after Noah runs the world, the Torah speaks of dread and fear. The dread of the human shall be upon the animals. So over here it says that basically Jacob was concerned that the surrounding peoples will destroy him. And here Jacob journeys. says, They did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So from this, I have, don't remember where I read. Some people conclude from this that Jacob was wrong that Jacob's fears were unfounded. Here, after all, they are traveling and it's per perfectly safe to travel. I conclude precisely the opposite, that the Torah goes out of its way to say that the fear of God was upon them and they didn't pursue Jacob, which strikes me as fundamentally, they might've pursued Jacob's sons in, in avenging what happened in Shechem or fearing that it might happen to them as well, which is a separate possibility but that the fear of God was placed upon them, and they didn't chase after the sons of Jacob. And now the question is how the Chumash presents God's interest in protecting Jacob's family. And what strikes me is that when you read these verses, what strikes me is that God's concern over here seems to be, sort of the, the narrow concern of God over here, is that Jacob be allowed to fulfill the vow which he took. He took a vow to come back to Beit El, and God is going to ensure that possibility that Jacob can come back to this place where his, in a sense, his spiritual career began, which is Beit El, having run away from 
leaving the family. And Achitat Elohim is what allows Jacob to go to Beitel. So it strikes me that there's a divine intervention over here, because Jacob, in fact, is in trouble. His, his fear over here was not some kind of paranoia. His fear is justified because the brothers did act in a, in a way which would seem threatening to the neighbors and perhaps also an unjustified way. And so the Torah says that God imposes God's fear upon the neighbors. They didn't pursue Jacob's sons, which sounds like that it, all things being equal, they would have pursued Jacob's sons and Jacob's fears were well-founded, precisely well, well-founded. Um, does that mean that they did the wrong thing? Well, it certainly suggests that from Jacob's standpoint, from a pragmatic standpoint, they did the wrong thing. And later in the Chumash, he makes it clear that he thinks they did the wrong thing, not just from a pragmatic standpoint, but they did the wrong thing from a moral standpoint. And I don't believe that over here, we should read this verse as necessarily saying, just from a practical standpoint, you've endangered me. I think that Jacob is troubled by what they did. And the evidence for that, I think, in the Chumash, leaving Jacob out of it, is that the same Shimon and Levi who massacred the town of Shechem are the same two brothers who are the ringleaders in the plot to, uh, to kill their own brother, Joseph. So when it comes to you know, Shimon and Levi, when it comes to Dina, their sister, as it were, their sister, which is Leah's Dina Bat Leah, they, they take vengeance and they take it to an extreme. And when it comes to a brother who's from a different mother, Rachel's son, they're quite willing to shed his blood. They're the ones who try to, who intend to and would have killed, killed their brother, thrown him in a pit without water, or even before they kill him straight, straight off. So I think the Chumash in general presents them as people who have a problematic side and are, are prone to violence. And the two, the two stories, I think, are not to be disconnected from each other. In one case, they kill too easily. And in the other case, they kill too many. In any event, God has intervened over here so that Yaakov can bring his, build his altar. I'll read a few more verses and then I'll stop and take comments and questions. We're up to verse number six. Jacob came to Luz that we already know that the prior name of Betel was Luz because the Torah said so in chapter 28 that Jacob named the place Betel. And in chapter 28, it's the verse prior to Jacob's netter. So the Torah is reminding us in a way of, of Yaakov's nether. He came to Luz, he named the place Beitel, and he took a nether, which is all about the Bayat. And now we have Yaakov coming back again. The story is in a way is revisiting both his, his, his vow in chapter 28, and it will revisit shortly the change of the name, which happened in chapter 32. The Torah rec is recapitulating it here, or, or, or one might say it is reframing it. It never simply recapitulates it. It's reframing it. He comes to Beit El, who v'cholam asherimo, together with all the people that are with him. That's actually very interesting. The word am is a word that we're accustomed to see later in the Bible, later in the Torah. Am Yisrael, the people of Israel. It's interesting that over here, earlier it, 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 it described the people with Jacob as his bayit, 
and the people that are with him. Uh, the point over here is that here suddenly, there's just one group, which is called Amo, or the Am Ha'am Asheri Mo. It emphasizes Am Asheri Mo. And that, that includes everybody. It includes his sons, includes his family, and it includes presumably the people they took from Shechem. They are an Am. And Jacob now, he builds the altar that he promised to build. And he names the place. Once again, we have the God of Beitel. So Yaakov here is fulfilling his vow. And what's interesting is that, of course, the story here is not just going to fulfill the vow, but God, this seems like a, a great spiritual moment. Great spiritual moment, which first of all requires preparation, because God said, go there and stay there, Vishab Sham. It requires purification. Purify yourselves, change your garments, which presume is not just about changing garments. And on one level, it's about that. On the other hand, it's thinking about yourself differently. You're moving to a different place. It very much reminds us of the way the Torah describes uh, coming to, to, to Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of, of, of the next book of, of Exodus, of St. Shemot. It's not just another stop along the way. The Torah has, describes all kinds of preparations for this experience of receiving the Torah, which is not just about getting laws, but it's an experience of standing uh, in, 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 in God's presence. And over here, and of course in the book of uh, Shemot, coming to Mount Sinai is part of becoming a people. Book of Shemot is about Israel becoming a nation. And over here, we have also Jacob becoming, one might say, family, which is the building block of the nation. And what's interesting over here is that these people that Jacob picked up, or the family picks up from Shechem, it would appear are actually part of this uh, idea of receiving the Torah. Receiving the Torah is, and this is how the, the Talmud understands it, Receiving the Torah was, we might say, in the, in the language of the Gemara, part of, part of becoming Jewish. The Talmud sees the standing at Sinai as part of a conversion process, which begins in Egypt. It sees the, the cleaning the garments as, as, going, as, as, as ritual bathing. The circumcision for the men was in Egypt prior to the Paschal sacrifice, the Korban Pesach. The receiving of the Torah was the acceptance of the mitzvot person who wants to join the Jewish people, anybody can join, but it's, it's a covenantal community and part of the covenantal community is, is, is commandments. So over here, it sounds like, and, and that's with everybody. The Torah emphasizes over and over and over again about the stranger. It's very unclear in the Bible whether the stranger is so-called Jewish or not. But in any event, over here, I think the emphasis on the Am Mo is very striking. And in that spirit, Let's look at the next verse, after which I'll stop and take comments and questions, because the next verse is very striking. Verse number uh, nine is Batamat, verse number eight, I'm sorry. Batamat Dvorah me neket Rivka. Vatikaver mi tachat vete o tachat alon. Vayikrashimo alon vachut. This is a very curious verse. We are told that Devorah, Rivka's nurse, 
Meneget Rivka. We remember that in chapter 24, when the servant of Abraham was negotiating with the family to allow Rivka to leave her home and to travel to the land of Canaan to meet up with her prospective husband, the Yitzchak. So um, at first the family agrees, then the family says, no, you know, it's premature, let's wait a while. And the servant in chapter 24 says, do not delay me. God has sped me on my way. Do not delay me. Hashem Hitzliach Darki. That's what the servant says. Hashem Hitzliach Darki. And um, so that's it. Send her right away. So the, so the family says, you know what? Let's ask, let's, ask, let's ask this young girl what she wants to do. They say to Rivka, do you want to go? It ends up to be her decision. Fatomer Eilech. And she says, I will go. That's chapter 24 where Rivka agrees to go, which is very striking because that's what Abram said. If, if the woman doesn't want to go, she's not the right person. At the end of the day, it's Rivka who decides to go. This is chapter, long chapter, chapter 24, the very end. That's verse number, um, verse number 58. Verse 58 of chapter 50, 50, 58. Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And in the next verse, so she, she said, I'll go. And they agreed. If she says she's going to go, she can go. Maybe they thought she wouldn't agree. So they sent off their sister, Rebecca, and her nurse, along with Abraham's servant and his entourage. So there the Chumash mentioned Meineket Rivka. Apparently she was very young. The Midrashian speaker as being three years old. She's very young and she has a nurse, a Meineket. Whether nurse means literally to nurse her or like a caretaker, I don't know. But Meinikta. So this Meineket Rivka, whose name is not mentioned, they don't mention the name. But over here, in verse number eight of our chapter, chapter 35, that Devorah, the nursemaid of Rivka, died, and she was buried in Betel. She's buried under the tree, which they called Alon Bachut, the tree of weeping. So, in other words, it's parallel and contrasted with. A few verses earlier in verse number four, when Jacob takes the idol idolatrous, the idols and the idolatrous objects, things used in idolatry, and he buries them, he buries them under the, when the objects you say to bury, because is a different sense than Bar. Tamun is something that is hidden. So the point of the idols is you shouldn't see them. It should be out of your grasp, out of your sight, out of your reach. So the Torah uses the word taman. When it comes to kever, that's, that's a different field to it. It's not, you don't want to see. It's that someone is not in this world. So you, the person is put in the ground. You might want to visit the grave as often as possible. So it's very different. But the parallel is in each case, there's a tree. But in the first instance, the idols end up in Shechem. 
But in the second instance, the idols end up in, in Beit El. And the question is, why does the Torah mention the death of Devorah, Rivka's nurse? And to make the question a stronger question, it's a question in and of itself is a good question. But the, the stronger question is that the Torah actually never explicitly told us till now, it never says, and Rivka died and was buried, never says it. Now we know she died, because later in the Chumash, when Yaakov says, bury me, take me my body back to the land of Canaan, and bury me in the grave, where Abraham is buried and his wife Sarah, where Isaac is buried and his wife Rivka. There I buried Leah. So, so we know Rivka is dead, because she's buried there, and it says she's buried together with, 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 with Yitzchak. But what's interesting is the Torah did not record her death. The Torah never says, Vatoma to Rivka. So Rebecca never says she died, but a nursemaid says she dies. So what is this? That is peculiar to say the least, to, 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 to record the death of her nursemaid, but not to recall her own death. So it raises the obvious question. Okay. Just one second. It raises okay. the obvious question. What is the death of, why is the death of Devorah Menech and Rivka here? And why is it significant? Okay, yes, someone wanted to speak up. I, I think um, the nursemaid is the last of the family of of the family that they're leaving. It's like the last the idols are buried, and now the person who is the one last tie to um, Levan, Levan's family, is gone, and she also is being buried. And right. they're going to move on and never touch that culture again. That's right. So I think there are two, right. I, I, I think there are two ways to look at it. I think they're both very good. I, you, one suggestion is yours, which is exactly as you say, that the story of Yaakov, if you think about it, is about Yaakov's establishing his own, his own identity. Mm. And in order to establish his own identity, there are acts of separation. The main challenge he has is to separate from from his uh, uncle, father-in-law, Lavan, he's a challenge because the Lavan is a shady character. He's a manipulator. But Jacob certainly has the potential to be, to be similar to Lavan. He has that in him. He certainly has the potential. There's a Lavan in Yaakov, obviously. And what Yaakov has to do is to separate himself from that piece of himself, which, which he encounters in, 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 uh, in, in, in Lavan. So, and then he meets Esau. And he also has to separate from Asaph in a way that is right, which is on one hand, he has to make amends to Asaph. On the other hand, he has to make it clear that he and Asaph are, they just can't, they're different. They're completely radically different people, different, different set of uh, values. And Yaakov must separate from Asaph, it's not a question. On the other hand, he wants to separate on, on fairly good terms and to Asaph to accept his, his uh, his request for uh, for uh, for forgiveness, which he does. So what is left over here? So now he comes to Beit El. This is his this is his his vow. This is his promise. And um, and uh, and yeah, I think that what Zell is saying is that this is the last link to Lava. because. Why did they send the Meneket together with, this is the question, why did they send Meneket, what does the Torah say? 
They sent Rivka and they sent Hermene naked with her. Mm-hmm. And I think what Zoe is suggesting is that we know the family didn't want to send her in the first place because they said to the servant, why don't you wait a little while? Wait, wait a week, wait 10 days, wait for... And the servant understands, wait a while means you'll never get out. Mm-hmm. They're trying to store it. They don't want to let her go. So she says, no, no, I, I, you have to let her go. Okay, we'll ask her what, what, she, what she wants, this little kid who has a nursemaid. And maybe they're thinking she'll say, you know, wait a while till I grow up or whatever. She says one word, Eilech. But the family still wants to retain some kind of connection to her. So the Meineket Rivka is the family's, it's the one the family sends along from the family to actually to uh, keep the family connection. But at this point, what Jacob is doing is severing those ties, which he already began severing earlier, especially with Lavan, who's the prime uh, problem for Yaakov. So Zella says, and therefore the death of, of Rivka, of Meineket Rivka can be seen as, as, a, as an important step, important step in Jacob assuming his own identity, his own nation. The Torah speaks about the Am Asherimo, which is very striking. He's the progenitor of the, of, of, of the Am. So the, the focus over here is that the separation from, the separation from, uh, from Jacob's past and the establishing of his own identity. That's one possibility. Yes, thank you for that. That's one of the two possibilities I wanted to suggest. So thank you for preceding me with that. And the other possibility is exactly the other side of it. I'm not sure that they contradict, but the other side of it is that Devorah Menegei Rivka is actually not, she's, she's, she's a caretaker. She was sent by the family. But the point I hear in the, in the Chumash, I think, is that in this, in this event of coming to the sacred place, to Beit El, what the Chumash, I think, is interested in suggesting here, and it foreshadows something that appears in the future, is that from the Torah standpoint, it's not a closed club. The Torah does not believe that you're a member of the tribe or you're not a member of the tribe. The, the rabbinic tradition picked up on this, even though it's true that in Jewish history, the Jews have not done proselytizing for any number of reasons, many good reasons for it. Uh, one of them was that if they did it, they'd be killed. That's, that's a good reason. But the fact of the matter is that the Torah certainly is open to uh, others joining. Uh, and even if they don't join, even, even if they live amongst you in an amicable way, we have all kinds of responsibilities. So over here, perhaps, the mention of, of Devorim and Neked Rivka is not to separate as a demonstration of separation from from, from from Lavan, from the past, but rather an act of inclusion. That here, when he comes to this place, he spoke of his bayit, but the bayit, earlier the Torah said his bayit and those that are with him, but the bayit and those that are with him together are lumped under one term, which is the Am Asherimo, being part of the Am. And then the Torah says, and you know what? The, the, the righteous stranger or the person who wishes to join or has joined you, is also part of your community. And that's evidenced by the fact that the Chumash emphasizes where she's buried. She's not buried in Shechem. She's buried in Beit El, parallel to Shechem, but opposite of Shechem. And not only that, the tree is called Alon Bachut, the tree of weeping. In other words, we are, it's a tree of weeping. We are, we are crying about the death of this woman 
but would appear from this verse, we don't know what motivated Rivka, what drove Rivka to decide at a very young age to cast her lot with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the saintly Isaac. After all, she, she is brought up in the house of Laban. We know that Rachel, her counterpart, is connected to Laban. She takes Laban's idols with her. She has her reasons to do it. But Rivka, for whatever reason, is separated from Laban very early on. When the servant first comes to Rebecca, she rushes and speaks to her mother's house, it says, not to Laban, not to her father's house, to the mother's house. So the Chumash were left to wonder what influences might there have been upon Rivka. Chumash never tells us, but through the prism of this verse, that Devari Meneket Rivka, who dies, is included in Beit El. And not only that, that we all are sitting shiver for her, as it were. By the suggestion is that she was the person outside the family, presumably, who was a constructive influence on the very on, on Rebecca herself. And one might even go so far as to suggest, possibly, that the mention of the death of Devorim in Neked Rivka is actually a, a kind of oblique reference to the death of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of Rivka herself. The Torah doesn't explicitly ever tell us Rebecca died. We know she dies from later, but never records the event. But over here, Devarim and Neked Rivka and Rivka perhaps are even tied together in some way. One might even see Devarim and Neked Rivka as a kind of teacher, as one of her, as one of her guides in, in life. So here we have an interesting verse, obviously problematic verse in the sense that what's it doing here? But here we have two different and perfectly reasonable explanations of the verse. And maybe they don't even contradict. Maybe on one hand, what she represents, because the family sends her. From the family standpoint, she sees the connection to the family, to love on the love one's house. But from a different standpoint, not from the family standpoint, but from our, from the, from our standpoint, from Rebecca's standpoint, from the covenantal standpoint, she was one of those instrumental in, 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 in bringing Rivka forward, who after all is the one who recognizes that Jacob is in fact the covenantal son. One couldn't question her manipulation, but one can never question the insight of Rivka. She knows exactly how the covenant is to proceed. And let me stop here and take comments and questions, either in the chat or speak up. Shot. Shot, what is what is what is the, what is the nurse doing with the entourage? She should have been in Hebron with 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 the child she brought up. That's a very Rivka good question. I don't really know why I can't oh. answer that question, except to suggest we are we don't by the way, we have no idea about Rivka at all, actually. But who knows? It's a very good one of those questions that. I don't think it's possible to answer because I don't think the Chumash tells us, but, but I would say in, in a certain sense, the fact that she should be elsewhere, but is here underscores the fact that she's here. You don't expect it to be here, you're saying. It's unusual that she's here. So almost the Chumash wants it to be present in Beit El at this moment. It's one of those moments I would say when, when, when the nation is born actually, because the, the promise to of the neder come back and which is fulfilled upon Jacob's return and Jacob wrestling with the angel and Jacob getting a new name, which is the next verse over here as well, that in becoming Israel, one might say, becoming Israel means being open to others who, who wish to join, who, 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 who believe in this, in, in, in this kind of connection. That's and great. Abraham went around crying out in God's name and presumably 
as the Midrashim see it, and it could be the simple, the simple pshat, he is proclaiming God in the world. So the idea of proclaiming God in the world is part of the responsibility of one who is uh, an, 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 an adherent to, to God's covenant. The fact that the Jewish people, for the most part, haven't done that over time is a very good, good problem. But over here, I think your question strengthens the point. No, it's great. It's, it's, it's part of the... Here. She is here. She's part of it. It's part, it's part of... It's, it's, yes. it's, evident, it's evidence of the, Torah, of the Torah's magic surrealism, actually. Of course. Yes. The Torah's, well, there are many, many examples of, yes. of, of, of situations where, from any logical standpoint, it's what we call suspension of disbelief. There are many places in the Bible we have to suspend our dis- How could it happen? How could Abraham chase up north, north of Damascus, age between 80 and 90, and defeat four powerful kings? It's not a question the Torah wants us to ask. Suspension of disbelief. Anybody else for comment or question? Like uh, yes. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. okay. Um, thank you. Um, so I have uh. uh a point that might that I think supports your secondary reason, which I think is is the primary reason why Devora is mentioned. If in fact her mission has been Rebecca, and let's say Rebecca's support and maybe spiritual upbringing since the time she was born, and if that was her mission, one could see that she wouldn't have died until her mistress died. And so the fact that the, the, that if we go along with the fact that she was instrumental in, in Rebecca saying Elech, and the Torah doesn't mention Rebecca's death, but mentions Devorah's, and the Torah is bringing her in as part of the Am, I think that oh, the implication is pretty clear that she held on until Rebecca died. Now Rebecca dies, now she's here alone. So that's sort of that's one point. And also, could she not be the proxy for Rebecca? So Re- right. Rebecca is, yeah. So Rebecca isn't here. Um, it, the tragedy hurts our hearts because she said, I'll see you in a few days. I'll call you back. Right. And of course, it never does. So the word proxy is a good word. That was my intention, actually, when I said it's a reference to Rebecca. I think that's, a, yeah, proxy. that's what I had in mind. That actually, whether Rebecca is, for whatever reason, maybe she's not alive anymore. But in point of fact that Rebecca's uh, vision that Jacob is the covenantal one is finding fulfillment in these verses. So we would be totally appropriate. Who would be more appropriate to be there than, than Rebecca? And presumably she's not alive anymore. We know she didn't summon Jacob. She didn't con- try to contact Yaakov and she said she would after a few days. So there's a strong evidence, I think, from the text that she's not alive and she should be here. And then Meneket Rivka stands in for Rebecca. Yeah, that yeah. And you get the impression, at least from the, the back of chapter 24, there's no way she would have let Rebecca out of her sight. And so if she's here alone, I think the implication that she has died and now she's standing in um, as a proxy for Rebecca. That's certainly possible. Okay. Anybody else for a comment? Rabbi? Yeah. Yes. Oh, go ahead first. Go ahead. Go ahead. Rashi tries to connect and explain all of these things that why would, according to your first explanation, which really makes so much sense, but then why would it be Alam Bachud? If it's a good thing that he's separating, why would he be crying? So Rashi likes to say that number one, he did send Devar, that's the, she did send Devar, that's the Vishalachti, she did send it to tell it that he should come back and that she died and that he was also, he also heard about the death of his mother, so he was crying. Um, Otherwise, I don't see why he would be crying 
if if he he should really be happy that he's completely separated from right. so what, what i was suggesting what i was suggesting is that the two are not necessarily contradictory because the, the, the family is sending her to maintain the connection. So from that standpoint, she represents in the story, the family's interest in, or the family sees her. She is a connection to the, to the family which sent her. But on the other hand, the, there's also the person and that the person, Meneket Rivka, is not necessarily what the family, <laughs> family has one intention. You know, they're sending her to keep the link, right. but the very person that they are sending I suggest could be seen as a, a, a very positive influence. I mean, it's possible to see Rivka as simply one who came to, like I, Abraham, came to God on 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 on, uh, on their own, without anybody instructing them. But generally speaking, uh, that doesn't. I mean, life, I mean, it's hard to know in the text how the text wants us to see it. Generally, in life, it doesn't work that way. Generally, in life, there is some people who help direct us. Doesn't mean they teach us everything. It's what the Gemara calls a Rebbe Muha. You're Rebbe. What does Rebbe mean? It's not someone who, some of whom you learn most of your wisdom. What do you mean, most of your wisdom? Most of our wisdom, all of us learn from, from our own study, our own experience. But it means that someone who gave you a path, someone who gave you a, a derech, someone who gave you a way of thinking, someone who gave you a certain vision that you can aspire to. Then you, everybody's on their own. So, I mean, you know, that's how it generally works. So therefore, from that perspective, I think that um, you can see Menek Devore both in, in, in both senses, both as one who is seen by the family, who's a connection in that sense from their perspective. But on the other hand, there is um, the person who perhaps is seen as a, as, a, as a good person and therefore we cry for her. So you're right that Rashi tries to, Rashi tries to, to explain based on the idea that she's the link to the other ones, why, so why they cry, et cetera. That's well said. But I, I personally don't think you have to go there. I think you, one can accept both interpretations. Someone else, Lazo, what do you want to say? Uh, I want to comment on uh, what you said about the appearance of the word um. It seems that uh, Yaakov himself is aware of the fact that a change has occurred in the way in which he addresses his own people. Uh, he doesn't command them, he doesn't tell them what to do, but he, it's a cooperative effort. And I don't remember the posuk uh, right now, but if you look at the posuk, the way it's phrased, it's let us do this as if we are doing it together. He's right. a new leader. Right, you could also, by the way, your point, you, one could, I think, take your uh, point and expand it and say that, in terms of the previous chapter, Yaakov waits till his sons come back from the field. He doesn't say anything. Um, and one can, one can see, if one wants to put a more positive spin on it, that look, Yaakov's return to the land, there's a, there's a new generation of his children, there's a new generation, young people, the family has a problem. So he turns it over to them and says, okay, guys, you know, how would you handle it? Let's see how you would handle the problem. The eight, it's like turning it over to, to others, not so much as an abdication of responsibility, which is how we've been seeing it till now. And I still maintain it is, but, but the point is one could read it otherwise and say, not so much he abdicates, it's more he's interested in seeing how they're gonna handle this very difficult problem. And a problem that they feels they're deeply connected to because it is after all Dina Batleya. Let's see how, how, these, how, these, how these siblings handle it. Um, and of course, from his perspective, after the fact, they mishandle it, he criticizes them, 
obviously, but that's a, one way to see it. So we're sort of turning over to the next generation, the um, opportunity to make decisions. And with that comes the opportunity to make mistakes. Um, there were a couple of other comments and I think I wanted to make an yeah. additional, is, yes. Is this, uh, is this possibly an oblique criticism of Rivka in terms of the process of how he got the bracha and all of the pain that ensued. I mean, let's just say Esav would have gotten the bracha. So what? Yaakov still would have gotten the right bracha. Well, that's a question. If, 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 if that, that takes us back to chapter 26 and 20, 27, 28. I mean, the way, the way I presented it is that Yitzchak doesn't actually understand the very blessing that he has. It's not two separate blessings. He has one blessing, as he says to Esau, but only have one blessing. And it's only through Rivka's intervention that Yitzchak comes to understand that the blessing which he really has is inappropriate for Esau. I mean, at the end of the day, I'll put it to this way. Yaakov thinks when he comes back home that Esau plans to kill him. He thinks Esau's gonna kill him. Oh, he's certainly afraid of that. Because he says to himself, look, I took from him this blessing, which is which is which is of which is of infinite value, the, the covenantal blessing, the connection to God. So he tries it several different ways to appease Esau, sends him gifts, he prays, he divides his people in half. At the end of the day, the plain reading of the Chumash is that fundamentally Esau doesn't actually care. Esau does not bother by it at all. He's very magnanimous. He forgives him. He says, "I'll even tell, help you along. You can travel with me. I'll take care of you." You don't want to come with me? I'll, I'll leave you some people who can help you, etc. Yaakov doesn't want that. But I think one way to understand it is that it could be that from, from Yaakov's standpoint, the blessing that he took has infinite value. But from Esau's standpoint, the blessing which he took has no value. It's, it's worth about one bowl of soup. Because what is the blessing? The blessing, the covenantal blessing, is about Geirud Abdu'l-Gadimri. It's about suffering and enslavement. And you don't even see the, the results of the blessing, only the fourth generation. So it's a blessing that Esau actually has zero interest in, objectively speaking. And it's a blessing that's completely inappropriate for Esau. So therefore, I, I wouldn't put it that way. I think that Rift is not wrong about, I, I don't, it's true what you're saying that it, it sets into motion a process of, of a very difficult process of, of, of exile, of suffering, punishment on one end, but it's also a covenantal opportunity. So that's, you know, I think from, once again, the Chumash is complicated. Maybe she may have gone about it the wrong way, but her, ins but her insight, one might say her instincts are 100% correct. On the other hand, she is a loving sister as the Chumash emphasizes. So she's gonna be manipulative. That's how she does business, but her, but her insight is not incorrect. I wanted to, um, Add a, one detail. Was, was anybody else? Someone else had a comment, and then I want to add something over here. Was there somebody else? No, is there someone in the chat or something? Um, yeah. Mr. Jacob Zoth, you have your hand up. Yeah, Jacob Zoth okay. is a condition that if you return me to my father's house, then you will be my God. And Meneket Rivka is the last survivor of his father's house. So the fact that he meets up with her and then she dies means mm -hmm. that the, he's, the, the, the oath has been fulfilled. So now uh, it's incumbent on him to make uh, his God, make, make God his God. What do you mean he's the last survivor of his father's house? What does that well, mean? Well, Yitzhak, Yitzhak is dead. Yitzhak is not dead. dead. Yitzhak is very alive. 
He's going to meet him in about 10 verses. <laughs> he meets him at the okay. end of chapter 35. Let's find out first. Since you raise I it. make a mistake. How about chapter, verse number 27 of chapter 35? He goes, he visits him there. He dies afterwards. He dies in the next couple of verses. No, no. It's exactly what happens. He does meet Yitzchak. Yitzchak lives for quite a while, by the way. His death is recorded afterwards. Doesn't mean he dies then. That's a different conversation. Not for now, in the future. That's true in all of Genesis. The deaths are recorded way before they die. That's a very, very interesting fact of the book of Genesis. And we can discuss the implications of that at some other point. But he doesn't die right away. He dies later on. Yitzchak. In any event, um, in any event, yeah, I wanted to make point out one other thing about chapter 30, about Yaakov going to Beitel. And um, Yaakov goes to Beit. Yaakov came back to Shrem. The story of Shrem is chapter 34. Then you have Beitel in chapter 35. And then the end of chapter 35 in the verse I just cited, says by Yavo Yaakov in verse 27, he goes to see his father, who is, as was mentioned earlier, in Hebron. He goes to Mamre Kiryat Arba, he Hebron, Asher Gosham Abraham Yitzchak. So he goes back to the place of Abraham and Isaac, which is Hebron, and that's in chapter verse number twenty-seven of this chapter. So he goes back, as he said, So that pattern of Shem, Beit El, and Hebron—that's the journey that Yaakov takes. What's interesting is that Abraham took a similar journey, right? Abraham enters the land in chapter 12. And where does he first go? First place he goes in chapter 12, verses 6, 7. God appeared to Abraham in Elon Moreh, which is Shechem. That's chapter 12. He comes to Shechem. That's the first place he goes. Chapter 12, let's get the verse. I think it's verse number 7. Let me just double check that. Chapter 12, verse number 6. By Yavar of Rambar, it's had become Shechem. So the first place he enters the land is Shechem. Same as Jacob upon his return. Then he's traveling, traveling, keeps on traveling. In verse number seven, verse number eight. Verse number eight. Then he travels. East of Beit El. Right? And then actually he goes down to Egypt and he returns to the same place in chapter 13, comes back to the same place, right? He says he travels back to the same place in chapter 13, verse 2. He travels from the, in the south to Beit El, Adam Akom, to the same place where he was earlier, between Beit El and I. So Abraham travels not in Beit El, but near Beit El. Earlier it said to be Kedem Beit El. And then after Lot separates at the end of chapter 13, God says to Avram, keep on walking. And Avraham, he keeps on traveling. The last verse of chapter 13. He travels to Mamre, which is in Hebron. So Abraham is exactly the same three places. Shechem is one, Hebron is three, and you have the middle place, which in the case of Jacob is Beit El. In the case of Abraham, is interesting, is Mikedem Le Beit El. 
And now the question is, what do we make of that distinction? That's a very good question. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the parallel between the two which allows us to ask the question. It's a wonderful question. And now let me briefly make a comment about, about the difference between Mikedem Rebetel and Betel. And that is that in this book, I had a very long conversation yesterday with Devorah um, about Kedem, which she's wrote about and she spoke about many times. I mean, in the book of Breshit, you have to talk about Kedem. Those people that go Kedem or Kedma, Lot goes, Lot, Lot leaves Abraham by Isagot Uri Kedem. Mi Kedem does not mean from Kedem, it means in Kedem. Story of the Tower of Bavel, by Hibinas Amri Kedem. The whole world travels Kedma eastward. Um, Yishmael is thrown out. Okay, he doesn't go Kedma, but his first child is named Kedma. And those, and then Jacob went Kedma, right? When Jacob is running away in chapter 29, by Yisoy Yaakov Raglav, by Yelech Arzov and Kedem. And the six kids Abraham has later, he sends Kedma. That's right, and that's correct. And the ones that Avram has, B'nei Ketur, B'nei Apiyuakshim, Kedma Eretz Kedem, it actually, it emphasizes there in chapter 25, at the beginning of 25, Kedma Eretz Kedem. And now the question is, what do we make of this? So this is a long conversation. I'm not gonna have the long conversation now. Tomorrow night, I spoke for one hour about this yesterday, about an interesting problem that she raised. I can't get into that now, very interesting problem. I think I have a solution, but I have to talk to her about it. But in any event, here's the point. The Torah said that Jacob went Kedma, right? And what's interesting is that Jacob goes to a place, right? The first time we encounter the word Kedem is east, east of Eden, right? East of Eden. I think Cain dwells east of Eden, right? East of Eden. Um, east means in this book, Brigitte, leaving the sacred place and never returning. The human being never returns to Gan Eden. Lot never returns to the land. Um, Yishmael never returns to the land. And it's true that it doesn't use the word Kedem when Yishmael journeys, but it does use but his oldest son is Kedma, and the parallel story to Yishmael, which are B'nai Shim, that he gives gifts and Avram sends them away, or Eretz Kedem, that's Keturah, that's parallel to the Yishmael story, which is essentially reflected in the Medrash that Keturah is in fact Hagar. That's what they're picking up on. So there it's Avram who sends him away. In the first instance with Yishmael, he doesn't want to do it. God forces him to do it. Sarah says, send him away. He doesn't want to do that. But later he does it. He protects Isaac. He gives everything that covered. He gives them gifts, but the blessing is to Yitzchak. And now Yaakov went And when you read that 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 verse, chapter thirty-three, verse one, and Jacob picked up his feet, and he went You say to yourself that on one hand, in chapter thirty-two, chapter twenty-eight already. Chapter 29, I'm sorry, chapter 29 is Kedem. 
28 is where Jacob takes the vow. 28, God says, I will, I will protect you. I will bring you back. Not your mother. I will bring you back. 29 starts as he picked up his feet and went to the land of the east. And the reader says, land of the eastern is right there. The reader says, on one hand, God promised to bring him back. On the other hand, nobody who ever went eastward ever came back. No one ever came back from the east. So what is it? Is he going to come back or not come back? When you read chapter 29, you say, stay tuned. Let's see. Because in truth, actually, Jacob left to his own devices will never come back. That's clear. It's only because God instructs him to come back. I will be with you, right? The God who brings him back. Jacob left to his own devices will, will, will be fall to Jacob the fate of Lot and Yishmael and all those who went came. But in point of fact, he comes back. Now the question is, and the interesting question that I was thinking about a lot, is once Jacob comes back, what does that signify? Once he, once he comes back, what does it signify? So let me say, I think there's a lot to talk about in relation to that question, but I would say the following that actually, if you think about Kedem, Kedma, the story of Yaakov running away from home. He runs away from home, and in chapter 28, he had a dream, and he had a vision, and he makes a vow, makes a promise to come back to this land and to establish the bayit, to establish the family, to build Beit El. And if Yaakov does that successfully, if Yaakov will be able to build the bayit, the inclusive structure, both the structure of the temple and the structure of the family, that in fact, and that will include the fourth generation, Jacob is the third generation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If Jacob in fact will be able to do that, then that will be a fulfillment. Jacob will finally fulfill the covenantal promise and that will certify the fact through Jacob's vow and Jacob's building this by it, will certify the fact that this land upon which he rests is in fact the covenantal land. There's no other possibility. So I would suggest actually, and there's a lot more to say about this, that the idea of Kedem, the idea of going eastward, right? Which is related to, right? Related to, 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 to Gan Eden, basically. In other words, when you go Kedma, you're completely out of the picture. And the Torah emphasizes those people that went Kedma, they're out. But once Jacob actually, in these, in these verses, establishes, establishes the, the covenant, establishes Betel, establishes the Bayit, then, then the term Kedma, after Jacob, nobody goes Kedma anymore. Because you can't actually go Kedma anymore because Kedma is there as a, as a, as a sign that someone has left the land. In other words, when Lot goes Kedma, there's always the possibility that Lot, in fact, could, that, that the covenant could be fulfilled through Lot. Yishmael is sent out. If he goes Kedma, it leaves open the possibility that someday he might be able to return. But once Jacob establishes Beit El, which is not established to Jacob, it's through Yaakov, Yaakov establishes the Bayat. Once that's established, the word Kedma never appears because it's irrelevant, because the place is now secure. There is only one place. There's no, there's no alternate place. 
And I was thinking about that in terms of Beit El over here in chapter 35 and chapter 28 and, and Abraham's journey. Because Abraham doesn't, it's interesting that Abraham, who has the same journey, he, Shem, Beit El, and Hebron, but with the Avraham, it's not actually Beit El. Because Avraham does not succeed in the bias. That's not his mission in life. His mission is to choose someone who will succeed him. But the, the covenant is over three generations and four generations. Abraham begins it. Abraham allows it to continue. Abraham passes it on to Yitzchak, but he doesn't build the bayit. So he doesn't go to Beit El. He goes, interestingly, to be Kedem with Beit El. There you have the Kedem. It's not, it, as long as it's not finally and totally secure, there's always the possibility that that other possibility exists. But once you have the bayit, which is over here, and from this point on, there is no Kedem. Now, there's more to say about this very interesting, very interesting problem. And uh, hopefully in the future, we'll deal with this after Pesach when we pick up with the, with the next chapter. The next chapter is the story of Asa's genealogies. So it's the whole chapter about Asa, Asa's family. It's one that many people skip. We're not going to skip it, but it's, it's a very interesting things in chapter 36. In any event, okay, let me... We have 10 minutes left. Does anybody have a comment at this point? Otherwise, we'll continue with the next couple of verses. Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll just continue now. And I'll take a couple of minutes. Let me ask you something. Excuse me. Yes. Then why do we, we use have the phrase, Gan Eden Mikedem? There it's talking about time, it's not talking about place. Correct? No, no, it's not time. Mikedem is in, in the east. No, no. God put the human being in Gan Eden Mikedem, right? So no, there nice. it has, but there it has. Kedem can be place or time. Kedem, Kedem right. can be time. Right. But, it, but, it, but in, in that verse, it's actually place. And it's, but, it's um, I think it's a place in general. I think in, in, the, in the Torah. You talk of God as Elohei Kedem. It could be. That's a, I mean, I, 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 wanted, I would deal with that question after Pesach, because but there it obviously has a positive it's related to Gan Eden. But there it I has a there positive connotation. What? But there it has a positive connotation. Right, it's positive before you get banished. Gan Eden becomes, the question is, what is Gan Eden after the banishment? Is Gan Eden after the banishment simply the, a place you might even want to go back there, or maybe you can't go back there? It's, it's maybe a wonderful place, but it's not, it's not negative. It's just it's a place you can't, you can't go back. It's, it's guarded by the, by, the, by the flaming sword, by the Kruvim. Kruvim. Right. It's, it's simply inappropriate, or does it take on some kind of negative cast? It, it's inappropriate, certainly, because once you have knowledge, you can't live in Ghanaian. Ghanaian is not a place for people who have partaken of the tree of knowledge, because the tree of knowledge means you can make all kinds of choices. And in Ghanaian, there were very few choices. So therefore, Gan Eden is the place that's simply irrelevant. It's, it's, the, the, the search in the Torah is for the alternative to Gan Eden, for the people who have knowledge and can make choices. And the alternative to Gan Eden in the Chumash, the true alternative is the land of Canaan and the place of the Mikdash, the place of the Mishkan. Those are the alternatives. However, there is a verse that does suggest earlier in Breshit that Gan Eden becomes even a negative. And that's when Lot looks up, Lot is leaving, separating from Abraham, Lot right. looks up and he sees the Sodom, Kula Mashke, was very fertile, yeah. right? 
It compares Sodom to Egypt, and we know there are all kinds of parallels to Mitzrayim, but it also compares it to Gan Hashem. Gan Hashem can only, there's only one God in this book, it's Gan Eden. So Gan Eden is compared in that verse both to Egypt and also to, uh, to uh, Sodom. You're in bad company if you're compared to those two. So the question is, what is that about? So that, that's a conversation for you after Pesach. Um, in any event, okay, let me just say a couple more, a couple more verses here, and we're not going to finish the chapter. We'll have to begin next time with this. But now we have Now God appeared to Jacob again when he came back from uh, this is parallel to this wrestling of the angel story. When the, the angel blessed Jacob, but over here it's God directly who was blessing Jacob. And God said to Jacob, Your name is Jacob, Yaakov. No longer shall your name be Jacob. Maybe we should say, No longer shall your name be only Jacob. But rather your name shall be Israel. And then the Torah says, And God called him Israel. So God has named Israel. God is naming him now. In, in, in light of the verses over here, we can see the earlier story of this messenger from God, this angelic human messenger as kind of forecasting the future, telling Yaakov what, what in fact will be, but not actually naming him himself or itself, whatever it is. And over here, God is actually naming Jacob. Names Jacob Israel. Shemo Yisrael. God's promise. So first of all, the God who appears here to Yaakov and makes this promise, the name of God is El Shaddai. That's a very interesting fact that here the Torah calls this God Shaddai, Shindarud Yud. What Shaddai means is a great dispute among, among many. My own personal feeling is that the word Shaddai, Shaddai are actually breasts. And I think that it's the God of, it's, it's the God of fertility. It's the God who actually uh, gives you blessings, sustains you. That's what I think. God of fertility, as the, as the, as the verse continues, I'm Shaddai, Pray or revey, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will descend from you. And yes, and kings shall issue from you. Right? And then the next verse is, and the land which I promised to Abram and Yitzchak, I will give to you and to your descendants after you. So here we have, um, yes, it's an interesting point about this image of the of the nurse, one might say. Meneket Rivka died earlier, and now God is presenting <laughs> God as a kind of nurse, as it were. Very good point there, Noah. Thank you for that. <laughs> An interesting point. And actually, there's more to say about that, but leave that for now. But it's a very good point. Thank you. So the question is very simply the following question, which we can, it's always good to leave, stop with a question. And I will stop with a question. What does this blessing mean? What does it mean be fruitful and multiply? God is speaking this to somebody who has 11 sons and a daughter. Maybe fruitful and multiply. 
and his family is basically built. Oh, yeah. I mean, one more child will be born and born in this chapter, which is Binyamin. But what is that about? Pray, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall emerge from you. And here we have the promise of kingship as well. And of course, the promise of the land. And the question is, if you're Yaakov, how do you understand what God is, teach, is telling you, instructing you? So these verses, it turns out, are of incredible significance because these verses, we have an interesting parshanut on the verses. We have, we have a, a, a very early exegete who's going to interpret these verses, not over here, but later on we have an exegete and a very good one who interprets the verses. The exegete I'm referring to will interpret these puzzling verses is none other, maybe the first exegete in our, in our history. His name is Yaakov Avinu. Jacob himself will interpret the verses. He gives a, he gives a parsha new to these verses, which are puzzling. He be fruitful and multiply. Yaakov gives it a, a, an explanation. A, a plain explanation would be, given the fact that only has one more son afterwards, that pray or does not refer to Jacob the person. But since we spoke about Jacob creating the Am, that the blessing over here of pray or and kingship and the land is not directed essentially to Yaakov as the person Jacob, but rather to, rather to, to, to Israel, not the person Israel, but the people of Israel. That is certainly a possibility. And I think it's the most plausible one until we come to Yaakov's own interpretation later. Here's a different shot. And we'll get to this hopefully later on. So the plan is, stop now, and I'll turn it over to Noah. The plan is that after Pesach, either the day after Pesach, or what, because Pesach ends, I think, on a Shabbos. I'm going to be in Israel then. I'll be Zooming from Israel, hopefully. Uh, but either the either Motzei Yantiv or the following week, we will continue and we'll pick up right from here. And the focus will be Jacob and Joseph. That'll be the focus. Um, but, it's, you know, it's all intertwined. Of course, we'll have to start with the story over here, the death of Rachel, etc. That will take us into the story of Yosef, which is chapter 37. Okay, Noah, did you want to... Uh, Where is the Kedma part? I'm so sorry. I'm looking for that. Kedma, the concept of Kedma. Where, where is that located? Where, is found, where Kedma is found? It's found... Eden. In, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh the verse of... The verse of yeah. The verse that... The, the verse that that Sodom is like is like Eden, that's in oh. chapter thirteen. Okay, thank. It doesn't say came over. It says Vayisah won't be kept. Won't go mm. to the east. Got it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there is no class next. No, this class doesn't meet next week. That's chapter thirteen. I just find the verse. I turned it over to Noah. Chapter thirteen, verse number, uh, verse number ten. Chapter thank thirteen, you. verse number ten. And then in verse 11, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. yes, okay, wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Silber, as always, for a wonderful class and for everyone here for joining us. Uh, this entire series is always very wonderful. Your participation really makes it whole and full. So as mentioned, we will not be meeting next Sunday morning. Uh, we, you know, we have to get ready for Passover. And uh, if you haven't visited Drisha's Passover subsite yet, we have gathered up, rounded up um, some of our previous lectures. Uh, and you can also go there to sign up for this year's Seder telling, which will be on Tuesday, the 12th. 
at 8 p.m. Eastern. And you can also sign up for uh, Seder and Song, the music project that we have been talking about on and off. That is the first season of what will hopefully be a much larger project. So uh, you can either get it delivered to your email each morning at 8 a.m. Otherwise, we will post at noon each day and then you can, you know, uh, binge it as they say after a few days once all four episodes are up so those in particular are discussions between rabbi silver and myself about the seder but they also feature strongly uh, different melodies uh, performed by mr andy statman on clarinet and mr abai steinman silver on piano so i enjoyed it i just interrupt and say what that be this is a very small beginning of a very big project with focus will be Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. There'll be a lot more music there and a lot more things and a lot of planning will go into it. I'm extremely excited about this project and I'm collecting all kinds of things that I never knew before. Um, a lot of them from Mudgets, which are amazing. Actually, I never, they're not out there, this, but I'm getting, learning some of these Nigunim and we plan to, it will be a focus on Hasidic music and on Eastern music. And um, very, very excited about this. I think it's, it's I don't think it's any, anything like this actually exists. The music is coming from a deep religious place. This is coming from deep places. And, um, and some of this music is really remarkable. So I'm very excited about it. I love Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur too. And we'll talk about that as well. But the music I think will really add a lot to our experience of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So stay tuned. So everyone, please have a tremendous Pesach. We hope to see you at Seder Telling. And then again, after Pesach for all of our other uh, wonderful classes, we're looking to have a pretty full schedule after Passover. So we hope to get it online as soon as possible to make sure folks have time to plan out your schedules and be well. Thank you all. Chag Sameach to all of you.